All right, so the federal government's appointed a new national chief nursing officer, reinstating a position that aims to bring more perspective from nurses to uh, the federal health care policy discussions and decision-making. Leah Chapman uh, has been named to the position. Uh, She's a 20-year nursing veteran who's worked uh, in leadership positions in critical care, home and community care, harm reductions, and has held positions in academia, research, regulations, professional practice. She's really qualified. Here's a a quick clip from the press conference earlier today. There are already a number of jurisdictions in Canada reporting nursing shortages, which is having an impact on the functioning of emergency rooms and other critical health services that Canadians need and deserve. That's Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, and he uh, was speaking uh, on behalf of the federal government, and obviously this uh, uh, may or may not be a big deal, because I want to talk about that with our next guest to discuss this and what impact this might have on healthcare worker crisis that we're facing here in British Columbia. Uh, we have Michael Sandel, CEO of the Nurses and Nurse Practitioners of British Columbia. Hey, Michael. Hello, Michael. Are you there? there Can we are. you hear I, me? I got you. I got you. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Sometimes things go, you know, technically wrong. Tim's wrestling there up and down the pods there. All right, so thanks for joining me. Look, first of all, I want your initial reaction to this announcement. It's a kind of a, it's something that we had in the past, and they uh, disappeared, and now it's come back. What are your thoughts on this announcement? Yeah, well, I think you know, my initial uh, uh, thoughts and feelings are similar to most nurses across the country, which is that uh, this is a positive development. Uh, it was an unfortunate loss uh, during mm-hmm. the Harper years when the chief nursing officer was um, furloughed. Uh, but now we have the position back, and uh, it is an important leadership position within the Canadian healthcare landscape. In particular, it aligns with the WHO's, uh, the, the World Health Organization's leadership, uh, one of the four pillars of uh, transformative healthcare, which is ensuring that there's strong nursing leadership. And so this is uh, one step in that direction. So overall, it's a positive announcement. Do you think some of the challenges that we are facing here in British Columbia right now related to nursing, and actually all healthcare for that matter, but specifically nursing, is a direct result of potentially they're not having that position in Ottawa for, the, what, 10 years now? It's, it's, hard, it's, it's hard to uh, align causality uh, with decisions that were made in the past. But mm-hmm. ultimately, the uh, inability to place senior leaders with uh, lived experience and understanding about how nursing can align uh, the way that it does uh, delivers healthcare with some of the challenges that we're facing has uh, definitely led to uh, some challenges that we could have overcome if we had caught to this earlier. Tell me how bad it is right now in British Columbia. How, how, when you're out there and you're, you know, you've worked in the industry, you're now in an executive level, but you know, tell me a bit about how it's, how, how how it is, how bad is it? It is the worst that uh, I've ever experienced it. Uh, And I've been in healthcare for almost 30 years now. Um, And we are seeing uh, burnout. We are seeing um, uh, nurses leaving the profession for uh, other opportunities. Uh, We are seeing inability to meet standards because of workload. We are seeing the inability to uh, maintain and train but I think the biggest disappointment that I'm seeing is that we haven't had, we haven't taken the opportunity to leverage the knowledge, skills, and abilities that nursing brings mm-hmm. inherently to the engagements, uh, and we're missing that opportunity. So there, this is this is one way that we can leverage that opportunity. But there are definitely more opportunities to be had. 
The Premier here has been quite aggressive, uh, surprisingly, against uh, the federal government in recent months, uh, really pushing hard and saying, you know, more funding is needed. Uh, we need more support from Ottawa. We're not, you're not keeping up with the changes that we're seeing. Uh, is this a good way to go to create this animosity, potentially, between the province and the federal government? I mean, obviously, I can't comment on that uh, per se, not being from a federal perspective. Right. I don't believe that there would be animosity created. Uh, we, we would like to see uh, the inclusion of chief nursing officers provincially across oh, yeah. Canada, hmm. provinces and territories uh, that collaborate with the federally appointed uh, chief nursing officer to ensure that there is an integrated uh, leadership uh, structure within the uh, nursing and healthcare delivery sector to address at a certain level, this HHR problem that we're facing. Mm-hmm. How do you think that position in Ottawa, a chief nursing officer, federally and provincially, would, would actually push your agenda forward, especially when it's related to uh, human resources and getting staff in and wherever those people might come from? I'll get to that, but how, how do you think that might uh, impact the, the policies and the, and the funding? Yeah, absolutely. So recognizing that healthcare is a provincial uh, responsibility in terms mm-hmm. of its uh, point of care delivery, having federal coordination around these broad strategies is extremely important to ensure that we are all reading from the same book mm-hmm. and that we are not, for example, trying to implement something in British Columbia that has already been implemented in Manitoba or Ontario. Hmm. And reinventing the wheel is just a waste of resources. And so having the opportunity to have a national perspective on the health human resources issue, on scope of practice, on enhancing leadership, on entry to practice education, all of these pieces have a touch point in each of the provinces Mm -hmm. that will benefit from having a federal perspective added to that conversation. What about qualifications? One thing we hear a lot about, and certainly in the healthcare sector, is that uh, there's not a mandated federal kind of qualifications for the jobs, that you can't move between provinces without having to go through a whole nightmare of bureaucracy and training. And Is that something that could be a priority for this person to push forward for? Yeah, absolutely. And they would, uh, I would hope that they would work closely with the provincial regulators. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, uh, healthcare practice, regardless of designation, is regulated uh, in the interest of protecting the public. And so mm-hmm. each of the prov- provinces have a regulator that regulate nursing in the interest of protecting the public. And there needs to be coordination with those regulators to ensure that a single standard mm-hmm. can be achieved across Canada from a federal perspective. So that's, it can't be as simple as having a bunch of boxes that you tick that, that, that qualifies you, that says, okay, you are qualified, you have all the things that you need to, you went to the right schools, you got the right things. That's not, it's not as simple as that? Well, I think in, I, I think in the Canadian context, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, nursing schools offer very similar curriculums, right. but ultimately healthcare delivery in and of itself is not a simple context hmm. in terms of ticking okay. a box. Okay. If you were engaging with a, a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a licensed practical nurse uh, and you were only aware of the fact that they had just ticked a box as opposed to shown competency in their ability to be able to care for you, mm-hmm. uh, there may be, that may create some consternation and some worry. And so, you know, there, the outcomes of nursing and nursing practice can have real-world consequences. So we do need to ensure that there is competency. And to sure. gain that competency assurances... We need to work from a federal perspective, but we also need to ensure that, you know, we're looking at the most efficient manner to achieve that. And so we'll work with the regulators, we'll work with government, and 
excited to work with a new federal CNO to try and find ways to find efficiencies within that system to ensure that those nurses get to the point of care as quickly as possible. And just last question related to immigration. Is that, that's certainly an area the federal government could really have a big part to play in, when it, especially when it comes to human resources. Getting people here from wherever uh, is something that could be sped up, don't you think? Yeah, you know, for sure. I think ultimately, you know, foreign trained nurses are uh, a part of a solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be careful, obviously, not to steal or to poach, as they sometimes right. term it, uh, nurses yeah. from other jurisdictions mm-hmm. that are suffering from a similar mm-hmm. human resources crisis that we are. And the outcomes of that will be much more dire for that population. But I think ultimately we need to work on retention. We have a number of nurses in the system who are either not working to their full scope or are choosing not to work to their full capacity for a whole host of reasons. And so I think if we want to address the HHR crisis that we're currently seeing, recruitment is a piece of it, but retention is probably more important, I would argue. Interesting. All right, Michael, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on your show anytime. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill. And before the news, we were speaking about the announcement that the federal government's appointed a new national chief uh, nursing officer. The goal, they say, is to bring more perspectives from nurses to federal health care policy discussions and decision making. Uh, we want to continue with this uh, topic and consider its impact here in British Columbia. And I want to uh, have uh, Amon Gruel, uh, president of the Nurses Union, join me here now. Hello, Amon. Hi, George. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Just see what's your initial uh, reaction uh, to this announcement. Uh, We're very pleased to hear this announcement this morning. Uh, You know, it feels like, you know, that the minister has listened. All of us uh, from the uh, nurses' unions across Canada had expressed to the premiers when they were here in Victoria that, uh, you know, there needs to be a pan-Canadian approach Mm -hmm. to this very... uh, comprehensive plan and that nurses need to be at the table to help develop those solutions so this is promising is that what it is to you it's it's being at the table that's the priority and before the break we were hearing you know we heard that potentially this kind of position should be in the provincial uh, as well each province should have this position as well is that what this is about being at the table it is about being at the table because the nurses are the ones who are at the bedside mm-hmm. at the different offices looking after the community patients in long-term care. And uh, so we do have something equivalent here in BC, which is our nursing policy secretariat that our union uh, negotiated in a contract. So uh, we do have somebody here in uh, BC, and this will help to coordinate and collaborate with them. And we here at BCNU are looking forward to collaborating with the new chief uh, nursing officer. How bad is it from your perspective here in British Columbia? I mean, this is about money. It's about, uh, you know, human resources. It's about training. It's about cross-provincial regulations. I mean, all these things. Is that is what, what's, you know, what is your list of what needs to be done uh, to fix the problem well, that we all are aware of? Well, you summed that up quite nicely there. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we do need a health human resources plan from mm-hmm. the government, a commitment from all levels of government, and having the nurses at the table to come develop those solutions. And, uh, you know, we're seeing those closures. It's impacting our yeah. uh, communities, and uh, we're seeing so many emergency room closures. And the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, if one nurse 
is off or a physician is off that closes down a facility, um, the fact that they're so reliant on just Mm. one person being present is uh, you're showing that we're at the brink of collapse or we're already collapsing. This is what, I mean, a listener called us just before the break and and brought this up and we talked a bit about it's, it's like this is a surprise to the government that this we, we we've known this is coming. We knew uh, aging population and all these things. We the, the, there was a clear path that this we were going to have a challenge in the future. I've heard it since I was a kid that they were predicting yes. that they were going to. And I've been around for a while. I mean, why is it that we're in this place? Is it just successive governments of different stripes that have just not committed to it, or is it just neglect? What what is it? Why did we just neglect this? I think it's a culmination of both. And, you know, the union has been calling for this for decades. When I first came into the profession 36 years ago, we were told that as nurses retire, there is going to be a nursing shortage and nothing was done about Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, we need to include more nursing seats. And why are there wait lists right now to get into nursing school? Put the funding into more seats and look at creative ways of uh, getting those students through the nursing programs and mentorships, uh, retaining the nurses that are currently in the system right now, as well as recruiting those that have skill sets uh, to come back to the bedside. And then we have our internationally educated nurses, you know, continue to keep on working on making that process Mm -hmm. as simple as possible, even if that's involving having them do mentorship while they're going through the process, get them already incorporated into the system to be able to see how things are here in Canada versus their country instead of them working retail or the service industry. We need them in nursing. Do you, I mean, you could see, I mean, you say you reported to the, the government and you said, here's the problem, here's the future. I mean, you were able, were you able to predict it to the actual number of nurses that were going to be needed in the future and, and, and what they should prepare for? That has been said to yeah. them for a yeah. long time. I know. That, you know, it, you can see that this is how many will be retiring. This is the age yeah. group of them. And this is coming. And, you know, so for at least two decades that I know of, where I have heard it constantly mm-hmm. being said, you know, we're going to have a shortage if something isn't done. And we're in that shortage now, and it's a global shortage. So whereas before we used to have people come from other countries, mm-hmm. you know, those countries are also looking to retain those uh, nurses in their uh, own facilities. Sure. but. Uh, Fortunately, there are people who still want to come to Canada and work here. So uh, hopefully we can still recruit those people to come over. But the government needs to come up with a plan federally and provincially. We heard of the news from Janet Brown about the BCGEU strike, you know, that they're going back to the table. That's great. And sometimes that whole issue related to wages and, uh, and, and strikes and all that stuff that you guys face as well, um, over, it sort of overrides. I, I get the sense that most people, whether they're pro-union or, or non-union, but they generally are, they look at the concept of a nurse. They go, yes, I agree. We should have more nurses and teachers too. I think people are going, yes. How can we do this? It's, you know, okay, maybe we don't pay them as much. I mean, whatever that issue. But the separate issue of 
We need more, and that should be a priority. I don't. I can't think of anybody who would disagree with that. Yeah, no, we need teachers, we need nurses, uh, we need to also compensate them for what their value is and what they provide. And we see what they did throughout the pandemic. Nurses were the backbone mm-hmm. of the healthcare system, and now, you know, they have gone through or going on to the third year yeah. almost, and uh, they have been keeping it up, and, uh, you know, they are now seeing the impact of that Mm -hmm. and you know they're having challenges the stress of working so short and it's not even that you know to comprehend what a nurse does and then you know there's a nurse that's looking after a critical patient and it's one-to-one nursing one nurse to that one critical patient but mm-hmm. if you have a patient that's crashing their heart rate is dropping or they've gone into cardiac arrest that's no longer just one nurse that's a team mm-hmm. of nurses and if you already don't have enough nurses and now they're having to do the workload of several nurses and let's say those nurses are now pulled from another assignment to go help this nurse there's one nurse that's left with 15 20 patients to care for and everybody has needs and the public needs to understand that you know there are CTAS is uh, the triaging system for the patients and so the critical patients you know will be the first ones that are taken care of and then by priority is how they are uh, entered into the system but those patients may all be deemed to be a higher level and yet you've only got one nurse looking after 15 yeah. patients because there's well, not enough of them and we've appointed this you know the federal government's appointed this chief nursing officer and you know it's just great but uh from your perspective if we were if you know how fast even if the, if all the money in the world was available how quick can the solution be taken care of to deal with this and to get us to the nursing. I mean, I have two sisters who are nurses. One just decided to retire. I totally get, and I think the pandemic kind of did her in. She's, she was just, you know, like I'm, I'm exhausted. So yeah. are you sure, I'm sure you hear that story all the time. Um, but throwing money at it is maybe not, wasn't, wasn't her solution. That's for sure. But getting new nurses, I mean, what do we, how fast can we solve this problem? Well, I mean, we've got licensed practical nurses, LPNs, Mm -hmm. who, you know, there's not enough programs to bridge them into a RN program, um, and they're wanting to go into that. So, you know, the government needs to come up with some creative ideas on how to get them upscaled and educated to become registered nurses. Uh, we used to have the diploma nursing uh, programs, which were two years, mm-hmm. and they have uh, included now some accelerated uh, degree programs. But what you need is nurses who are able to do the assessments and do the skill sets that are required to do the assessments of mm-hmm. their patients. And uh, so come up with some ideas on how we can get nurses into the system. But the very first one is open up more seats. You've got wait lists in the schools. Get those uh, people that are waiting to become nurses into the system right now. And and that can be done? Like the teachers are there? There's there's a way to expand that, to scale that right away? uh, Well, no, they would also have to upscale the education as well. 
than having the educators there and, uh, you know, incentivize possibly the mentorship Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, because a nurse who is mentoring someone still has their own patient load. And if they're working short, they have two nurses patient load while they're still trying to mentor a new student nurse into Mm -hmm. uh, all the skill sets that they need to learn because that's where you get the experiences at the bedside. Sure. All right, Amin, I appreciate you joining me today, and uh, we'll continue to follow this here at CKNW. Perfect. Thanks, George. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill this week and next week. Hope you're doing well on this beautiful August sunny day uh, here in British Columbia and in Vancouver specifically. Look, this hour, we've got lots of good stuff coming up here. In the second half of the hour, we're going to be talking about the Single Mothers Alliances in court today, seeking equity to legal aid. Uh, we're going to have details on that. We'll also go to Grouse Mountain where they're, they've announced a new gondola that's going to be built. Uh, that seems pretty cool. So we're going to find out about that. We'll also be talking in our last hour about uh, what's happening in China. Uh, their economy looks like it might be crashing. The real estate market is going like it's like 2008 over there. Uh, so we're going to hear about that and what impact that might have on our Canadian and our British Columbian economy. And we'll get your thoughts on that as well. I want to get your input from you, the listener. We'll also be doing our daily hit from the P&E and find out what's going on there. It's 4-H time out there. If you're a mom or a dad who's got a kid in 4-H, you want to tune into this because we're going to talk about the importance of 4-H and agriculture in this, what is basically a city fair. Uh, and of course, we'll have your buzz lines uh, at the end of the show and Jazz Johal will be by to tell us about his show, which of course you want to tune into here at CKNW. Our buzz line, by the way, always have this written down and close by or in your phone. 604-331-2899 is the number. 604-331-2899. We love to hear from you anytime uh, during the show during the show and get your thoughts and your opinions on anything. All right, so Ukraine's set to pass a, a grim milestone this week. It's six months, six months since Russia in, uh, launched its war and invaded Ukraine. Today, our Prime Minister announced that Canada will continue to support Ukraine and specifically wants to focus on countering Russian state-sponsored disinformation by creating a dedicated team to help increase uh, Canada's capacity to understand, monitor, and detect Russian and other state-sponsored disinformation and enable deeper international collaboration. Really interesting. I mean, uh, you know, this is disinformation. We have heard a lot about that. To speak uh, about Ukraine in general and Canada and our relationship, we're joined by Dr. Florian Gassner, Professor of Central, Eastern, and Northern European Studies at UBC. Hello, Dr. Gassner. Good afternoon, George. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for joining me. Look, six months, it's just, it's, uh, it's, you know, is, it, is this going to go on forever? I mean, what's going on? And the biggest uh, issue about that is when the war started, you remember all the messaging was uh, Kiev will fall in two or three days and then all of Ukraine will fall. And it's just, uh, it was unimaginable. And it's the most inspiring thing to see how Ukraine has not just held Mm -hmm. its ground, but has really put the Russian forces now close to what many argue could be a breaking point. Yeah, we thought the the government would fall, that they would probably assassinate. You know, we just had all these horrible, and they're they're totally... Uh, doing what we did not expect them to do. But Russia seems totally dug in. They're not moving. They're not, they're not going anywhere. And so that's a dilemma. Yeah, it seems especially a dilemma for uh, the leaders of Russia because they seem to have put themselves in a position where they can't get out anymore. Russia seems mm. to have the option either to declare full-up mobilization, which would be hugely uh, unpopular with the population, or to uh, admit defeat, which would immediately make the system Putin crumble. So they are—they have 
captured themselves. They have caught themselves in a situation where they can't move forwards or backwards, it seems. And our sanctions, do you think they're working? I mean, we get so much, I get so many different viewpoints. <laughs> you follow any kind of social media, you hear one, you'll see one story saying it's failing, it's not working. Then you'll see another story and it's working. We're just hearing the wrong information. Uh, is this, are the sanctions working, do you think? They are very much working as intended. The only thing that is unfortunate that the oil sanctions weren't tougher because that would have uh, precipitated mm-hmm. the implosion of the Russian economy. But all the markers, all the indicators we have, first and foremost, that Russia is no longer publishing the main markers and indicators so that people could see what the economy is doing, they all point toward the contraction and eventual implosion of the Russian economy. The Prime Minister today announcing this about disinformation. Uh, this is not new as far as disinformation. And, and one of the things, as I pointed out, is we keep hearing, uh, you know, that it's all all's well, we're doing great, we don't need to worry about it. the sanctions aren't working. And then, you know, you say, yeah, they're working. Um, is that what is this, this is about? The dis- how, how impactful or effective is the dif- disinformation coming out of Russia? And certainly we know, uh, given what happened in the United States, and this is sort of pretty much well known, that Russia was very involved in disinformation in their elections. Uh, you know, how effective are they and can they continue that? It's the, the economic messaging coming out of uh, Moscow is a great example because they throw to us something that we then take months to dissect, like the example that all of Ukraine consists of Nazis. And then we all, we like talking heads, pundits, spent a month explaining to everybody how that is not accurate. And the same with the Russian economy right now. The Russians will say, well, look at how the ruble is doing. Unfortunately, the ruble is actually not an actively traded currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody in Russia can sell rubles. Everybody who in Russia makes dollars abroad has to exchange it into rubles. And that's, of course, why the ruble is all the way high, because it can't move as a currency. But if you look at the uh, imports in Russia has fallen 50% since the war, over a 1,000 companies have pulled out. This will lead to unemployment. And most importantly, uh, they're not getting the chips they need. A close friend of mine, he works for a German company that produces like a very specific a gearing module for big machines. Oh, I see. Okay. The first day after the sanctions came, their Russian cu- uh, uh, customers called and said, hey, we'll set up shell companies so you can send these because we need them. Russia keeps saying, well, they can just get them from China. No, they can't. They are in the West. They need the Western technology. And once the machines they have right now break down and they no longer have the replacements, uh, quarter three and quarter four is going to look very grim in Russia. The, you know, I, th- I, I but I, I, I worry that the support uh, for Ukraine is waning in the West, that uh, it's starting to slip. Do you think it's slipping? I actually don't think so. Sometimes it seems a bit on the policy level because it's not the main thing politicians are talking about anymore. Mm-hmm. But I spent uh, over a month in Europe and everywhere there were uh, flags and banners and events and small communities mm-hmm. taking in hundreds and hundreds of refugees. And then I was going on a trip up the Sunshine Coast and down Vancouver Island and everywhere I saw not just posters and flags, yeah. but ornaments and people had welded things that celebrate Ukraine. Yeah. So I think the support is very much there in the population. You, you, you traveled over there. When were you there recently? Uh, June and July. Okay. And you went to some of the countries that are close by, like which, where did you, and, you know, not all of Europe or where did you, where did you go and what, what were the sort of the people saying? And obviously one of the things we hear a lot about is concern that this could bleed into other countries that were former USSR uh, nations or provinces or whatever they called them. 
I spent all my time in uh, Germany visiting colleagues and family. And just to give you an idea, the, the small town where I'm from, it has 15 or 13,000 inhabitants, and they had taken in two to 300 Ukrainian refugees, and they had organized weekly get-togethers so people could exchange ideas and swap resources and set up apartments. And... Uh, yeah, and in Germany, as in other European countries, they're starting to better understand how, what Poland has been saying for years now, what uh, mm-hmm. Slovakia has been saying for years, that you know the threat of a Russian incursion is very real and that the society as a whole needs to at least mentally mobilize for this. Yes, uh, you know, memories of the Second World War and, and what happened then. I mean, just take it seriously and then look what happened. One of the things I've heard in the last little while is about nuclear power plants, and, and certainly Chernobyl comes to mind. Uh, is this a concern, especially in those eastern, uh, the countries in and around that area, and I would say anywhere on earth, if you've watched the miniseries Chernobyl uh, and you're around in 1986, you know this uh, facility is in a uh, very risky situation to start with, but this war has certainly made it more risky. What are your thoughts on the on certainly the impact and the concern about that in the region? Well, the cynicism of the entire affair is startling to park massive amounts of your military on the territory of a nuclear power plant to shoot at targets from there is crazy. But mm-hmm. maybe even the bigger concern is, you may remember at the beginning of uh, Russia's uh, attack on Ukraine, they seized... Uh, the Chernobyl power plant, right? and the soldiers there on the ground didn't know where they were. They didn't know what they were doing. Many of them seemingly got radiation poisoning. There were reports now out of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that, again, Russian soldiers had radiation poisoning. And so you have some, you know, unwitting, unknowing possible idiots bumbling around a nuclear power plant, and that in itself is incredibly scary. The, the the entrance of uh, Finland and Sweden into NATO, uh, barring the partying nature of the prime minister of uh, Finland, who, you know, you could t- sure she likes to party, but she brought Finland into NATO. Uh, how impactful is, the, is that move uh, for the rest of Europe? And it's, again, it's probably a hallmark of Russian disinformation that we spend so much time talking <laughs> about the partying, yes. because it is... Interesting. The accession of Finland and Sweden is one of the paramount examples that the red line Russia continues to draw in the sand don't mean anything. Because for many things now, bombing Crimea, Finland joining NATO, uh, Ukraine starting European Union negotiations, Mm -hmm. every time Russia said something severe will happen afterward and what happened, nothing. They don't have the teeth they pretend they have. And so it's important for uh, Western society, the Western community, to keep together, to keep pushing, because that's the only way this will end. What, what are you most hopeful about and what are you most uh, fearful about the, with regards to this? I think the most fearful we are all about is ceasefire, mm-hmm. because ceasefire holds for some people, maybe the promise that you can go to the negotiation table and find an amicable uh, resolution, mm-hmm. but this didn't work in uh, 92 in Moldova, it didn't work in 93 in Abkhazia, Georgia, it didn't work in uh, 94 with Chechnya. Uh, it's Russia's mode of operating that they create these ceasefires and then just use them to gear up to make an even more aggressive push later on. So anytime any leader of state mentions ceasefire, um, I sh- shrink back a little bit. Hmm. And, and hope? Hopeful is that uh, the pressure 
people are keeping the pressure on. There is some dissatisfaction, like especially in Germany, where I'm from, in France, that the energy prices are going up. But so far, uh, the population, and particularly the general population, seems to be holding up and supporting their governments who are uh, holding the line and not bowing to Russia's pressure and Russia's threat. And seeing, seeing this community that unified, mm -hmm. that gives me hope that my friends and colleagues in Ukraine maybe hopefully sometime soon can start rebuilding and start mourning properly. Dr. Gasser, I appreciate you finding time today to, to fill us in on what's going on over there. Thank you very much. George Affle again for Jill this week and next week, and I hope you're doing well. It's a beautiful sunny day in August. Can't believe uh, August is rolling by too quick. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> I want summer to last forever. I love this weather. All right, so today West Coast Leaf is in court to defund the public interest standing uh, of Single Mothers Alliance, uh, the SMA, in their constitutional challenge to BC's family law legal aid regime. SMA is suing the province and Legal Aid BC, formerly called Legal Services Society, because they say family uh, law legal aid in BC has been woefully inadequate for two decades. Joining us now to discuss this is Raji Mangat, uh, Executive Director of West Coast Leaf. Hi, Raji. Hi. Thanks for joining me. So tell me, but obviously the province is not happy. They're willing to go to court over this. Give me, a, give me some background on what's going on here and why it's gotten to this point. Yeah, well, back in the early 2000s, um, there were some steep cuts made to legal aid services in BC for family law and for poverty law. Um, and we're now kind of just seeing the continuing trend of there being inadequate legal aid services, particularly in the area of family law where we've got... Um, people who are fleeing violence in their relationships and are needing to turn to the courts to get protection. Um, and so that's kind of the underlying basis of this case is that survivors of family violence um, are being denied meaningful resolutions in court when they're leaving an abusive relationship. What, what, what possible argument could they have against this? Well, I, I think the argument, well, what they're arguing today is actually nothing to do with the underlying issues. Um, today's hearing, and it's going to go on for a couple of days, uh, is a challenge to the Single Mothers Alliance as sort of an appropriate plaintiff for moving this challenge forward. Um, the province is trying to get the case kicked out before we even get to a trial. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, in terms of uh, getting back to your question, it, what you know, what's the possible response? Um, I think that they're quite concerned that this is going to open up floodgates um, and they've characterized the claim as a general sort of right to a lawyer, which is, is not... Um, what we're arguing for. So they're saying precedent setting could cause just basically anybody who needs legal aid will be able to get it for whatever little reason they might have, which seems a bit silly, but, you know, law is one of those things that's sometimes, you know, gray. Yeah, well, at this stage, um, because we haven't actually had a chance to argue about the, the, cha the, the real issues about, mm -hmm. you know, how does this actually, how does this regime that has a very low financial eligibility criteria. So really not very many people are kind of getting through the gate to begin with. Right. Um, and then once they are found to be financially eligible for family law legal aid, um, then there's a cap on how many hours of lawyer services they can 
they can get. Um, so it's this one-size-fits-all kind of approach to all the different kinds of cases that uh, might be coming through. Uh, and so instead of um, being able to talk about those things, which we're very keen to do, um, we're uh, in court um, trying to keep our case alive. And we're talking about a group that is already, uh, you know, women who are, you know, single moms or whoever going through horrible situations of violence. Uh, and now they're faced with complicated legal situations where they're, and they're just trying to get out of, a, out of, out of their, whatever battle they're in. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, we end up with a system that views many people as kind of being too well off to need legal aid when we know that there's an access to justice crisis and that many, many people are unable to access lawyers Mm -hmm. and get through the court system when that is the system that they're pretty much obligated to turn to when their relationship is ending and there's important issues at stake like, you know, who's going to parent their child, what the arrangements are going to be for that, um, and just sort of move on and rebuild Mm -hmm. their lives. Yeah, totally. Is your argument, though, if their argument is it's going to be too broad, and your argument then is we can find a way to refine this that could work for everybody? Yeah, exactly. I mean, currently, the way that family law legal aid works, it's you're only eligible for it if you meet kind of the scope of coverage. And that's really whether, you know, you need immediate kind of protection um, for yourself or Mm -hmm. your child, if there's a risk that your child is going to be removed from the province, um, if, you know, the other parent is not letting you um, have the parenting time that you should have with your child. So there's already a limited scope of when people can get family law legal aid. It's not like wide open. Um, It's not just any time you have a family law case, uh, you're eligible. It's really only in these very specific circumstances. And so we're saying that, you know, for women who are survivors of family violence, desperately trying to leave that situation, who are, you know, not going to reasonably be able to afford, um, you know, hiring somebody to represent them. Mm -hmm. And the expectation in our province is that they will just have to represent themselves or go into, you know, crushing debt to find somebody who will represent them. And it just seems that what's the point of having really good laws on the books if people can't actually access uh, the protection they need. Yeah, it seems like the most obvious <laughs> solution here. And I mean, if it's a bottom line thing, do you have any idea what additional cost it possibly could be for the province if they did actually underwrite this? Um, I don't know that. Um, it, it's definitely one of those things where it seems as though it's going to be a savings. But when you think about all of the other mm-hmm. impacts, um, you know, the the fact that people, if they're representing themselves, they are probably going to have to take time off work. They're mm-hmm. going to have to find somebody to take care of their kids. Um, you know, there's a lot of stress associated with litigation. No surprise there. Um, but it's it's only exacerbated often when somebody is leaving a violent relationship. Every kind of next sort of touch point for another contact with that person, every potential hearing, every sort of time they have to communicate is another kind of flashpoint where mm-hmm. there could be violence, there could be mm-hmm. harassment and abuse. And so um, we've also seen the court system itself sometimes gets used in a way that just is, you know, dragging somebody into court over and over again in a, as a way to intimidate them and to use up their legal aid hours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's um, I think sometimes, 
you know, the idea of, of cost savings, we sort of were thinking, you know, a little bit narrowly about what that means when, in fact, um, there are sort of downstream costs to maintaining a system that doesn't actually help and protect people. Right. So what happens next? What's the process here and, and what are your hopes here? Yeah, so, um, well, these three days uh, we are fighting to keep the case alive. We're mm-hmm. uh, going to argue that the Single Mothers Alliance um, should be allowed to bring this case forward to trial. Um, and uh, that trial would be happening in February of 2023. So we're, we're, wow. we're keen to get there. That's, yeah, I bet. And what can our listeners, what, what, if they want more information or anything else, what can they do? Um, they can check out our website, uh, westcoastleaf.org. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of information up there about the case, um, mm-hmm. as well as our social media. Um, we've been posting about it all day, and there's lots of information for people to check out. All right. Uh, I appreciate uh, the, the information, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be following this, Raji. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. George Offlegin for Jill. So, Grouse Mountains announced the installation of a new lift commencing on Friday, September 9th. The state-of-the-art gondola will replace the aging blue sky ride and will mark the start of a new chapter for the iconic Vancouver landmark leading up to its centennial, centennial in 2026. Joining me to discuss this is Melissa Taylor. She's a communications manager there. Hey, Melissa. Hi, thank you so much for uh, having me on. Yeah, no problem. So tell, pay me a picture because this is radio. So tell me what the plan is here so we can sort of, most of us know Grouse Mountain, but tell me what, what you're planning. Yeah, so as many people know, uh, at Grouse Mountain, we have our iconic red sky ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have a blue tram that, uh, as you mentioned, is aging. And so we're actually going to be putting in a state-of-the-art gondola to replace the blue sky ride. Um, and yeah, the new lift will be, uh, the installation will be beginning on Friday, September 9th. Gondola, is, is that different than the bigger, I mean, what's, what's the difference? Yeah, so our uh, sky rides are often mistaken for a gondola. Mm-hmm. A gondola has cabins that are suspended from a continuously circulating cable, whereas an aerial tram, which is what we currently have, actually remains fixed on the cable. So is there a difference in volume or how does it, how does it actually impact things? Yeah, so anyone who visits Cross Mountain has probably taken a ride on our iconic Red Sky Ride, and that uh, has the two tram cars Mm -hmm. uh, that go up and down the mountain simultaneously. The new gondola system will have 27 cabins uh, that will be continuously loading. So kind of like Sea to Sky, the gondola there. Okay, so much, much more intimate, I suppose, for people to get on. Yeah, each cabin, I believe, holds up to eight people. Okay, that's kind of interesting. You'll go up the same route, and the views will be amazing. Yes, you'll still get the same incredible view. The, the, the whole system up there is, is so unique to certainly in this region. Um, and I remember when I turned five, and this was a while ago, and we lived in uh, Ed- Edgemont Village area, and my parents asked me, oh, what do you want to do for your birthday? And this, so this would be in like 1969. Um, and, uh, I, and they gave me a choice to go f- to have a party or I could have, go to Grouse Mountain and bring, I could bring one friend. And I said, oh, Grouse Mountain, I want to go on that thing and go to the top. And then at that time, there was a really fancy restaurant and you had this view of the city. Um, for me, it's a really important and iconic uh, and, and personal uh, thing. But, you know, that the history of the, of the whole system is, is very interesting. It's, it goes way back. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will share uh, similar memories with you. I know myself, I do as well. It really is a place that holds so many memories for people, and there really is 
just a sense of pride when it comes to Grouse Mountain in the community. And so the Blue Tram uh, was actually first opened in 1966. Um, so, of course, it's had, you know, a long and storied life. But we're really excited to be opening this new lift to sort of mark that next chapter now as we enter this 100 years. And, you know, as you mentioned, there are generations of families that have been visiting Grouse Mountain. And so to be able to ensure the longevity of our, you know, world-class experience that we offer, not only to locals, but as well visitors from around the world, um, is something that we're really passionate about. I think a lot of people don't know that Grouse Mountain is a private enterprise. It's not public, right? It's not a yes. pub- yeah. Yeah, we are privately owned by Northland Properties, which yeah. is a local uh, family-owned organization, and they'll be funding this project. So there's no, no taxpayer dollars going into this at all? No public <laughs> money funding towards this one. Tell me a bit about the construction process and what, people can, what impact that might have for people who are, in, especially in ski season. Is there any worries that, you, that people might have to have related to that? So we don't uh, foresee there to be any disruption to our guests. Uh, We will be beginning uh, in September and October with the clearing of the gondola easement area, followed by other phases of the project, such as the building of the foundations for the new base and plateau stations, as well as the assembly of the towers. Um, And we're expecting the new gondola to open in spring 2024. 24. Okay, so two years to really build. That's that's yeah. two year and a half. It takes a long time. Now, how you're not? Are you guys involved in the grind at all? Is that part of your your job as well? Uh, So the gross grind, of course, is. an incredibly popular uh-huh. uh, popular part of Grouse Mountain. Um, and we work closely with Metro Vancouver uh, as far as managing the trail. Can I ask a favor? Because <laughs> when I do the grind, and I do it <laughs> once a year at least, yeah. I always want to be able to fi- find a way to pop out and look at the view. If you've ever done the grind, for anybody who has never done the mm-hmm. Grouse Grind, which is world famous, uh, a world-famous torture device for, for <laughs> friends who come to Vancouver. You go, oh, let's go do the grind. Oh, yeah, it sounds like fun. Yeah, we're going to climb a mountain. And then they basically face, you know, Tim, have you ever done it? I'm looking at my tech here. It's, it's you know, it's, it's the most painful, yet uh, at the end of it, you're, it's like uh, you feel great because you, know, you finished it. But it's not easy. But I always think, can't we have a part where it kind of pokes out so I can see a view and take a break and have a little drink, a glass of water and look at the – why is it so far off – uh, you know, the areas where you can see the, the views. You know what? I think that's what makes it even sweeter, that reward at the top, <laughs> is when you do pop out. We actually have uh, a brand new misting station this year, which, of <laughs> okay. course, during the heat has been incredibly popular. So I think, you know what, that reward of the view at the top, and then as well coupled with we've got our misting station, you can stop for, you know, some food on the altitude's deck. I think that makes it that much more rewarding All than if right. we had maybe a halfway station. I don't know. I can see what I can do. The, you, how many people would walk up it and never walk down it and they take the, take, the, take the gondola down? Is it most people? I would, you know what? I think a lot of people are able to really push themselves. And we want to make sure that people, of course, are researched when it comes to mm-hmm. doing any hike in Vancouver. But I don't have any exact numbers okay. for you. I know for me, I do, I do it and then I make it redundant because at the top I'll have a beer and a burger. And then I'm yes. like, oh, well, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? Because, you know, and then I take the gondola down and I'm like, uh, okay. There we go. Well, now we'll make it even easier with a new lift. There we go. <laughs> there we go. All right, Melissa. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you.